What is art? Is that a question that even has an answer? Does the value of art stem from an artist or the emotion sparked in its audience? In 1897, the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy penned an essay asking this question. For Tolstoy, art is understood in terms of the artist. For him, art is a means to convey the emotions an artist feels. But can something be art if it doesn't impart the artist's feelings? Or to put that another way, can something be art even if it wasn't intended to be? The aesthetic philosopher Arthur Danto asked this question with an interesting scenario. Imagine a bronze sculpture of a cat. Now this particular sculpture is placed in the centre of a university and, fearing the cat may be stolen, the school places a chain around its neck. The original artist never intended for the bronze cat to have a chain, but as the semesters pass, new students admiring the sculpture wonder what the chain could mean. Maybe it reflects our dominion over domestic animals, or our mistreatment of the natural world. So as we can see, Danto's chained cat definitely calls into question Tolstoy's ideas. At this point you might wonder, why this matters on a podcast about barbershops? Well, the question of whether barbers are artists is one I've been asked more than once in the shop, and it's what I'd like to explore today. Welcome to Short Back and Sides. Welcome to Short Back and Sides with Phil the Barber, a podcast all about barbershops. It's Short Back and Sides. Short Back and Sides. About halfway between Bordeaux and Toulouse in the south of France lies Ajan. Ajan is very typical of smaller French towns. Narrow winding streets sewn together by unruly cobble lead to one central square. Its red roof tiles are quickly met by miles of fertile farmland. It's even said that on clear days the snow-capped peaks of the Pyrenees can be seen from the town. When I asked a French client the correct pronunciation of the town's name, he also informed me Ajan is famed for its prunes, which are made from dried local plums and used as a garnish for brandy. In the centre of town, a great bronze sculpture stands triumphantly. The effigy depicts a well-groomed man performatively lifting one hand while clasping the other to his chest. We know how popular the figure had been when we consider the statue was erected in 1870, just six years after his death. When Jax Jasmine was born on March 6, 1798, his parents had barely enough to feed themselves, let alone him and his several brothers and sisters. The family were dreadfully poor. His mother would get by working in a laundry, his father in a tailor's and his grandfather, who had once been a soldier, was now resolved to begging door to door. The meagre income they generated was spread out among six children. Later in life, Jasmine wrote that when a prince is born, his entrance into the world is saluted with rounds of cannon, but when he, the son of a poor tailor, made his appearance, was not saluted even with the sound of a popgun. All nine members of Jasmine's family shared just three beds, so very little of his time was spent alone. Most of his young life was spent wandering the fertile countryside of Ajan. 
Jasmine's parents couldn't afford the fees expected to join the local school, so he would roam freely, learning from the land. In the rural and simplistic setting of Ajan, access to art was obviously quite thin on the ground. The closest Jasmine would get to culture was indulging in a bizarre folk tradition called a Sharavari. The Sharavari was a sort of mock parade to ridicule members of the community who broke social norms. A wrongdoer would be dragged from their home, paraded through the streets. Onlookers would make noise with pots and pans, throw vegetables and sing impromptu chants before dunking the victim in water. At the Sharavari, Jacques's father would perform simplistic poetry, which mostly served to insult his community, and I definitely don't imagine it did too much to help with his tailor business. Although the circumstances were quite brutal, it was Jasmine's first taste of rhythm, rhyme and performance. As he got older, an opportunity arose when a cousin of his mother, a nun, and a teacher in the local school was able to secure him a spot in her class. His mother was delighted he would learn what she never could, and his father was pleased someone could finally write down his insulting poems. Initially, Jacques wasn't excited about losing his freedom to roam the countryside, but his thirst for knowledge was obvious, and within six months he was fairly competent at reading and writing. His aptitude led to him being offered a position in a seminary where he studied theology, sang in the choir, and was an aide to the monks. He left the poverty of his family home for a bed and a full belly. Jasmine studied in the seminary for two years, and I imagine if he continued on that path, would have become a priest. But a series of poor decisions featuring a girl on a ladder, her skirt, and some preserved sweetmeats saw Jasmine kicked out of the seminary. With little other options, he became a barber instead. At age 16, he began to apprentice beneath a master barber. As well as gaining a trade, Jasmine was also permitted to sleep in a cramped basement beneath the tiles of the barber shop. He shared the dark space under the floor with rats and spiders, but having spent most of his youth in nature, wasn't much bothered. In fact, he was just happy to have a place to himself. And I suppose that's a good one to remind the apprentice if they're not bothered sweeping the floor, they could be sleeping under it. He took to barbering as quick as he had taken to academics, and before long his hands were as sharp as his scissors. Now it was time to turn his attention to the second trade of a barber. Conversation. The shop's patrons took interest in his quick wit and how effortlessly he could chinwag. Many of the clients, impressed with the boy's intelligence, would lend him books to read. So at night, when Jasmine squeezed beneath the tiles, he would read by candlelight deep into the night. Under the streets of Ajan, Jasmine discovered the importance of solitude. He would lose himself for hours in the worlds of great fictions and ancient histories. His voracious appetite for the written word had been awoken, and he devoured whatever work he could get his hands on. But it wasn't until after reading Estelle by the French romantic Fabian that he was first inspired to put pen to paper himself. In Fabian's work, he would regularly use the dialect of the Gascon region. Nowadays, spoken word and rap regularly use slang, so localisms often find themselves in mainstream patois. But at the time, Fabian's use of colloquialisms was very unusual and really spoke to the young barber. 
Not long after he first started writing, Jasmine grew interested in a second creative pursuit. A theatre group had begun performing in Ajan. With little other to spend his pay packet on, he would go to the performances most nights, regularly staying out all night, revelling in the showmanship. Jasmine became so wrapped up in the pageantry that he even considered becoming an actor and began neglecting his duties as an apprentice. One morning, after a particularly long night, he was ridiculed by the master, who wasn't happy he was late to work. The barber warned him he'd be kicked out of the shop if he continued to slack off. This rude awakening convinced him. To abandon a trade which had been so good to him would be a mistake. But the fire for performance never left him. So it didn't take long before he brought performance to the barber shop. By now, his writing skills had improved drastically and he began reciting the poems he penned for his patrons. Inspired by Fabian, Jasmine's poems were performed not in high French, but his local tongue, Occitan. The Occitan region covers parts of southern France, Monaco, Italy and even as far as Catalonia. So, drawing from Fabian's use of regional speech, his father's offensive rhymes and conversations from the barbershop, Jasmine developed a very original style that delighted those he performed for. Ajan's fertile farmland meant it was a hub for travelling merchants, so word about the barber poet spread quickly across France. For several towns over, people would travel to the shop and hear him perform whilst having their hair cut. As Jasmine put it himself, quote, You can see me with a comb in my hand and a verse in my head. I give you always a gentle hand with my razor of velvet. My mouth recites while my hand works. End quote. I think in French that probably sounds a lot cooler. It probably rhymes as well. That line comes from his first major work, a volume of poems called Papalitos or The Curl Papers. He would go on to publish four successive volumes of Papalitos. Some of the most famous poems in these volumes feature titles such as The Blind Girl, Martha the Simple and The Twin Brothers, all of which paint a beautiful picture of humble, working class people and their lives. Later in life, Jasmine put on public recitations of his poetry, which would draw huge crowds who would be charged for the privilege of seeing him perform. But Jasmine wouldn't keep the donations, instead giving the proceeds to charitable works, such as restoring the church in the southwestern town of Vert. His name as a poet and philanthropist eventually saw him receive a pension from the Académie Française. Pope Pius IX personally sent him an insignia of St. Gregory the Great as a mark of respect, and to this day a quote from his poem, The Third of May, is engraved beneath the statue of King Henry IV in Narak. Jasmine's work in both the barbershop and the written word required a keen understanding of people and the beauty of everyday life. His work immortalised the happenings of ordinary people in his community and gave them a voice in their own language. But is Jasmine's skill with a razor the same as his skill with the pen? Or, maybe being unable to express himself fully in haircutting, he moved on to writing as a better outlet instead. But can we really separate those things from each other? 
Jack Jasmine's written work is so inherently tied to his time in the barber shop that he even went as far as to call his books papelitos, you know, like curl papers. So at the very least, he is aware that barbering is part of his identity and it's something that he's proud of and ties it into his other artistic endeavours. So moving forward, art and expression meant something very different in Jasmine's time to say the 1960s when something new was being developed in a Plainfield, New Jersey barbershop. Fronted by George Clinton, this five piece became the Parliament's taking their name from the popular cigarette brand Parliament. Originally singing doo-wop, the band performed in a barber shop owned and operated by them, which they called the Silk Palace. At this time, many of the members were as young as 15 and would perform gigs at their business and also give haircuts. In Plainfield, the main hairstyle at the time was called a do or sometimes the wave. It was done by a chemical process that essentially burns curly afro hair and relaxes it, making it more manoeuvrable. To see what I mean, look at the way Nat King Cole or Sugar Ray Robinson would have worn their hair. From their shop, the Parliaments released several tracks across many different labels, but for the bulk of the decade failed to have any hits until the summer of 1967 when their track I Wanna Testify was released on Revelot Records. The song reached number 20 on the pop and number 3 on the R&B charts and shot the band into the limelight. But just before Testify dropped, a fortunate turn drastically changed things for Clinton who had unexpectedly gained $1.2 million. According to Clinton, One day, two extremely nervous-looking white guys ran into the Silk Palace with $1.2 million in counterfeit $20 bills, explaining they needed rid of the money fast. Clinton collected just under $2,000 to buy the bills, and the men still accepted, leaving the band with an incredible amount of money which they quickly started using to produce better music. The counterfeits look brand new, so from 12 till 5am every night, they would rub coffee beans over the bills and crumple them to simulate aging before pasting them on the walls to dry. The quality of their sound now developed rapidly as Clinton would bring in session musicians to play string and horn parts. The musicians were told their pay was counterfeit, but instead of the going rate of $200, they'd be paid one or even $2,000 for the session. Eventually, a state policeman who knew the parliaments knowingly told them that the law was looking for the money, tipping them on that their game was almost up. By this point, the band had paid out so many counterfeits, it had circulated back and they were seeing it in their shop again. Their fun had been ended, but the creative freedom the counterfeits offered them saw a drastic change in their sound leading the parliaments to the chart success they wanted. Off the back of Testify, Clinton formed a touring group from barbershop regulars. He managed the group while also serving as the frontman. By 1969, they had shortened their name to just Parliament. Originally, Parliament had just Billy Nelson on bass and Eddie Hazel on guitar. Quickly though, they expanded. Tall Ross played guitar, the organist Mickey Atkins joined and Tiki Fullwood came in on drums. Over the years, the lineup grew with the addition of Bernie Worrell on keyboards in 1970. Gary Scheider joined 
on guitar and vocals in 1971 and most famously bassist Bootsy Collins came over to Parliament from James Brown's band in 1972. When I Wanna Testify came out, the band rocked a clean-cut look. Two years later, their dues and matching suits were dropped for much crazier styles and freer haircuts. George Clinton himself even admitted to having a dick shaved into his head at one point. And in the name of historic research, let's say, I'll give a free haircut to whoever will let me do that for them. But the band have been fairly open that this massive change in their look and sound was mostly fueled by one thing, LSD. The psychedelic drug lysergic acid diethylamide was first synthesized by the Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman, who wasn't aware of its hallucinogenic properties until many years later after accidentally ingesting some. Someday for that guy, I'd imagine. But once its psychoactive properties were discovered, interest in LSD grew exponentially. In the late 40s, it was briefly used as an aid in psychiatric medicine. In the 50s, the drug was famously, or more accurately, infamously, used by the CIA in the MKUltra experiments. As part of those experiments, the CIA actually bought the entire world's supply of LSD for $240,000. But in 1963, the original patent for LSD ran out, sparking an intense debate. Many voices spoke openly in defence of the drug's benefits, such as Aldous Huxley, Timothy Leary and Alan Watts. The effect of LSD on the music scene and counterculture really can't be understated either. By 1968, Tom Wolfe had published the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and even the Beatles were advocating for its use. Despite it being made illegal in October 68, by then, LSD was pretty much mainstream. Going to see Parliament live during that time was a pretty extreme experience. If you were lucky, the band would usually wear nappies and bed sheets. The guitarist James M. Toomey said the first time himself and Miles Davis saw Parliament, they were not so lucky. The two legends watched dumbstruck as George Clinton performed the whole set completely naked. According to Clinton, he had dropped a lot of acid that night and has no recollection of the show. Over time, Parliament's lineup grew and varied so much that they formed a second group called Funkadelic. The two group's styles developed into bass-heavy funk. Their new sound had a lot of character and a charming, eccentric quality that made the Parliament Funkadelic P-Funk sound what it is. From his barbershop, Clinton began to expand his empire by managing bands formed by regulars of the shop. All the bands he managed would come under the P-Funk umbrella. With all his acts linked, and most even sharing members, the success of any of the musicians was good for all the bands. This style of marketing was completely original to George Clinton, and is still done by artists to this day. Hip-hop has many examples of this, the most obvious being Wu-Tang Clan. But business planning isn't the only thing Parliament Funkadelic gave to hip-hop. Their sound has been an integral inspiration for many of the best hip-hop beats ever made. Parliament Funkadelic samples have been used by Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Public Enemy and more recently Logic. Not to mention, George Clinton has separately worked with musicians as varied as Wiz Khalifa, Prince and even Anthrax. 
What started as a barbershop doo-wop band grew into a funk empire and reinvented how artists operated within the music business. But what of the Silk Palace itself? Or Jack Jasmine's barbershop for that matter? For both of these artists, barbering started them on a creative path, but the work they became known for took them out of the shop. Another real question I want to ask is not whether or not someone like Jack Jasmine or George Clinton see cutting hair as an art, because they themselves would be the artist in that situation. But as the bronze cat idea at the start shows us, art is just as much valuable to the viewer as it is the creator. So how does someone from outside of a barbershop view a barbershop? Which brings us to Norman Rockwell. Rockwell was born on February 3rd, 1894, and in the course of his life painted over 4,000 original works, illustrated over 40 books, and painted portraits of many US presidents such as Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. His style was known for capturing American society in a very idealized, picturesque way. One of Rockwell's most iconic and celebrated paintings captures Shuffleton's Barbershop, a shop based in East Arlington, Vermont, which Rockwell would visit with his sons. The paintings show a view of the shop through a window, but the business is closed. In the back room, a collection of people are playing music together, and the shop sits still, lit only by the dim light of a fire. Rockwell's youngest son, Peter, spoke about his love for Shuffleton's as a child, and he remembers wishing his name would never be called, so he could stay reading comic books and absorbing the atmosphere. In the foreground of the painting, we can actually see a stand stacked high with comic books for young boys. The shop's owner, Rob Shuffleton, played clarinet, and would host sessions in the shop's back room. This idyllic community feel was precisely what Rockwell loved to capture in his work, so it's unsurprising Shuffleton's Barbershop is so highly regarded among his vast catalogue. So as we can see, barbering is a trade known to inspire writing, music and painting. The shop can be used as a hub for starting a creative project or the subject of a work in itself. But the main question still stands. Is cutting hair an art in itself? For me, I've always tended to lean towards Tolstoy on this. I can't criticise the government or express love for my partner with a slick back. I can't deliver emotion with a fade. However, I also can't deny that a great haircut can make someone's day, or for that matter, that a bad one can ruin it. Perhaps like Parliament, barbering is our own $1.2 million dollars which is to say, it gives people the freedom to pursue creativity more fully. The trade of barbering lies firmly halfway between art and vocation. While the trade can definitely be an artistic endeavour, the final product has to be a collaboration between the barber and their patron, and so most barbers I know don't limit their expression to hair. Just something to think about the next time you get your hair cut.
as I haven't been able to cut hair for the past couple of months, I'm beginning to understand a little bit more the value that I get from it as a creative outlet. Doing something like a podcast takes a long time. You got to do a lot of work, a lot of reading, a lot of writing and a lot of editing. Whereas with a haircut, I get to start the creative process and 30 minutes later, enjoy the fruit of that labor. I get to finish a project every 30 minutes, maybe 10, 15 times a day. So the value you get out of that is several times a day completing projects and getting the the feeling of completing a project which I think for a lot of artistic things or in fact for most things in life you don't always get to see the win you don't always get there straight away you know it's it takes a lot of um, hard work and it takes a lot of time and yeah I think having something that you can start and finish is really good for the head but what I really want to know is what do you think about this do you think barbering is art is it a craft do you think it's a silly question whatever your answer is I'd love to hear it and you can get in contact with the show on at SBAS podcast on Instagram thank you very much for listening to Short Back and Sides with me Phil the Barber Goramila Mahangut and Salon